0: Good evening. I'm Wade Clark-Roof, uh, Director of the Walter H. Cap Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life, and I'm indeed, indeed pleased to welcome all of you to this evening's presentation. If you're new to the Cap Center, I especially welcome you. The Cap Center is devoted to dialogue on important issues in our time. We are a nonpartisan, partisan non-sectarian center. We bring a range of speakers and activities to the community. Uh, we have liberals, we have conservatives, and people for whom you could never peg a label on. And that's good, because this center is devoted to generating conversation about important issues where values and beliefs and ethics are involved. And that involves a lot of our lives. Briefly let me tell you about our next two events, in both of them in January. On January thirteenth, here at eight PM, we will have Lou Cannon, the columnist and biographer of Ronald Reagan, who will speak with the title The Rise of the Celebrities, Republican Politics from Reagan to Schwarzenegger. On January 21st, again here uh, at Victoria Hall, we will have Pumla Gobodo Madikizela, the South African writer who served on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission during the civil rights struggles in South Africa. Based upon her book, her lecture is entitled, A Human Being Died That Night, A South African Story of Forgiveness. Both lectures, as with all CAP Center events, are free. If you're not receiving our announcements and would like to learn about upcoming events, please sign in at the back with uh, With the young ladies back there, uh, with the mailing list for the cap center, we would be delighted to add your names uh, to our mailing list, both the email list and uh, the regular uh, uh, snail mail list. Now let us turn to this evening. The year two thousand and three celebrates two important anniversaries in American religious thought. It is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Ralph Waldo Emerson and the 300th anniversary of the birth of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards represents the Puritan tradition in American religious thought. He was an apostle of strict salvation and the certainty of original sin, and human corruption. Emerson, on the other hand, was an optimist and a, vision, and a visionary, one who believed in human possibility and untapped potential. America today still reflects this division in thought. And our speaker this evening chronicles this divide in his recent book, the transformation of American religion, how we actually practice our faith. Alan Wolfe is professor of political science and director of the Boise Center for Religion and American Public Life at Boston College. He is the author or editor of a dozen or more books, including One Nation After All, in 1998, and Moral Freedom, the Search for Virtue in a World of Choice in 2001, both of which were selected as New York Times notable books. He is a prolific writer with articles showing up in places like The Atlantic Magazine, The New Republic, The Washington Post, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Commonweal, The New York Times, and elsewhere. He has also conducted programs under the auspices of the U.S. State Department that bring Muslims or Muslim scholars to the United States to learn about our heritage of the separation of church and state. We're very fortunate to have Alan Wolf with us and to have this opportunity for you to learn more about this recent book of his, which, by the way, will be on sale after after we finish here and he'll be out and available to sign that book, if you purchase. So I encourage you to uh, do that, and it is indeed my immense pleasure to introduce to you Alan Wolf.
1: I'll sign it even if you don't uh, purchase it, really. (laughs) We wouldn't want anything so mercenary to uh, cloud our thoughts tonight. This is a a wonderful honor for me for a number of reasons. Um, Two in particular, though, I wanted to mention. One is that uh, I never met Wake Talk Roof before yesterday, and he's been an inspiration for me um, for many, many years. Um, i 've always considered him one of the truly outstanding, if not the outstanding sociologist of American religion. Uh, his books uh, had an enormously strong impact on me as I ventured into this field and uh, While I love my new book, uh, sometimes I feel that I've only rewritten things that Wade Clark Roof has already written. Uh, I try to put my own particular little spin on it, but uh, for me to be here and to acknowledge my intellectual debt to him is a great opportunity for me. And then there's Walter H. Capps, uh, who I never knew, uh, but uh, I'm a political scientist, and uh, I'm occasionally interested in who gets elected to the United States Congress, and I recall very much his election to the U.S. Congress and how exhilarated I was to hear that this distinguished theologian and scholar, uh, uh, and by all accounts great man, had uh, uh, taken a seat in our national legislature, and I was shocked at his death. I wonder now what he would think as the United States House of Representatives has transformed itself in just a few years into an institution that I don't think he would recognize, and I'm not sure he would be comfortable being a member of under its current way uh, of operating. Um, it's true that there is a direct family connection that has persisted, uh, uh, but still, uh, uh, being here under the auspices of the Walter Caps Center fills me with a certain kind of nostalgia for a certain kind of politician, uh, that outside the caps family seems to be uh, increasingly hard to find in the United States of America. So uh, I'm here to talk a little bit about the transformation of American religion. Um, I could tell you what I think about this uh, uh, subject, but I don't know any particular reason why you'd be interested in what I think about it. Um, What I try to do in my books, in books such as One Nation After All, for example, which uh, Clark mentioned in the introduction, is to provide a forum for others to speak through me. I do a lot of interviewing with people uh, throughout the United States and visit a lot of places in the United States, and uh, I try in my own work to let Americans speak for themselves as much as possible. I think that we hear a great deal uh, about what the intellectuals think. And on the issues that, the burning issues that divide us in the culture war, issues like abortion and uh, gay rights uh, and so on, we know what the people who appear on cable television think. They're quite capable of making their views uh, very, very well known. But we don't know what a lot of ordinary Americans think. And so in, a, in my book, One Nation After All, I tried to give voice to ordinary people. And uh, I think that's why the book was as well received as it was. It seemed a kind of refreshing alternative to the way especially the new and more contentious media portray the voices in American society. And if the book was successful, uh, it was because we heard in that book ordinary people wrestling with complicated moral issues and trying to explain all the nuances and all the complications of what often appear in the media as just simple-minded clichés. I try to do very much the same thing in The Transformation of American Religion. I tried to let people speak for themselves as they talk about how they live their faith. How Americans actually live their faith is the subtitle of the book. And the bo- and through this book I try to allow ordinary Americans to talk about what religion means to them. So it's only appropriate then that I begin tonight by offering some reflections from one of the people uh, who appears in my book. Here's what this person said. The feeling that one gets when they actually go up to read from the Torah is so intense. Now, this is obviously a Jewish person. The feeling one gets when they actually go up to read from the Torah is so intense. It has to do with time. It has to do with connection from generation to generation. This... This is the book. This is the document that has been like a silver thread throughout the ages of Judaism. It's such a personal honor to stand before it and to read a part of it. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, reading the Torah at the age of 13 is uh, called a bar mitzvah. Uh, It is a tradition. Um, As traditions go, it's a pretty old tradition. It does not, in fact, go all the way back to the time of Moses. It actually goes back to about the 13th century. Uh, But as traditions go, the 13th century is pretty good. Uh, I'll take that um, um, uh, uh, by any definition of a tradition. However, the person who uh, um, told us, who has just told us about the linkage through generation through generation, that the silver thread that runs across the generations, was undergoing something called an adult bat mitzvah. Now, a bat mitzvah is a bar mitzvah for girls. Uh, Traditionally, the bar mitzvah was only for boys. The first bat mitzvah, the first time any woman was ever called to the Torah, occurred in in the 1920s when a man named Mordechai Kaplan, who was the founder of a branch of Judaism called Reconstructionist Judaism, called his daughter Judith to the Torah. Judith Kaplan died last year at the age of 86. She was the first woman ever to read from the Torah, and thus was established the idea of a bat mitzvah. Now, today, all throughout America, girls are bat mitzvah just as boys are bar mitzvah. but as a tradition, this is not the 13th century. This is the 1920s. Now, The 1920s, that's still for our country. That's still a long time ago. I'll take that. I'll say, okay, that's a tradition. How many things go back to the 1920s other than the fact that the Boston Red Sox never winning a World Series? I mean, this is very, very hard to find anything this old. So I'll take that. This woman, however, reading the Torah, did so as an adult, not as a 13-year-old. Now, when did the tradition of adults being called to the Torah Take place. When did that start? Well, that started on an episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show. Um, the Dick Van Dyke Show. For the uh, more traditional people in the room, some of you, I'm sure, have no idea what it is. But it's a television program from the 1960s. And uh, in this show, somebody goes up to Dick Van Dyke and says, "I, you know, I'm um, here. I am. I'm 45. I'm facing a life crisis. I never had my bar mitzvah." and, uh, well, let's call the rabbi. Rabbi is never, and the rabbi says, you want a bar mitzvah? Okay, let's have a, so a new tradition is born. uh, The tradition of being called to the Torah as an adult, and it goes back to um, um, to, uh, 30 or 40 years in the United States. Well, all of this suggests to me something about tradition and something about America, that we are among the most non-traditional societies in the world, we are, a society that reinvents traditions with extraordinary alacrity. Tradition has never been something that we in the United States pay particular homage to, and yet religion is supposed to offer us a sense of tradition. Religion, in fact, is synonymous in many ways with traditions. We use the term interchangeably. Uh, We talk about the Protestant tradition, the Jewish tradition, and so on. Uh, and it's just a kind of automatic link that the one will go with the other. Yet how does anything really be traditional in a society as ever-changing as the United States? And uh, this person who evokes the silver thread and talks about the link through generation to generation is at one time part of a tradition. There's absolutely no doubt that she feels herself part of a tradition, and yet at the same time, she's innovating and reinventing and constantly changing the tradition um, year by year. Now, I begin with an example from the Jewish tradition, uh, and uh, one might say, well, okay, uh, we all know that uh, sociologically and politically, Jews are the most liberal of America's religious communities, that Jews are the most modern uh, in many ways in their outlook of American religious communities. And so obviously we're going to find this reinvention of tradition among Jews, but it would be very, very different if we turned to other religions. For example, if we turned to very conservative religions, like conservative Protestantism, there the situation would look very, very different. And it is true. The situation when we turn to conservative Protestantism is very different, but it's only different because it makes this woman look even more traditional by comparison. Jews, well, if, uh, if, uh, if one of the ancient rabbis were asked the following question, Rabbi, who's more Jewish? Someone who says that they obey and honor the traditions but says they don't believe in God or someone who says they believe in God but spurns the tradition, the rabbi's answer would have to be the tradition is more important than belief for Jews. For Jews, honoring the tradition makes you Jewish, irrespective of whether you believe in God. But for Christians, and in particular for evangelical Christians, belief is far more important than tradition. And in fact, belief for many an evangelical will come into conflict with tradition and when belief and tradition come into conflict it is belief and not tradition that will inevitably win. I know that it sounds obvious but it occurred almost as a bolt of lightning when I discovered that the phrase born again Christian as I reflected on it is about as non-traditional a word as anyone could imagine. To be traditional is to be born into a stream or into a flow to accept the conditions of your birth and then to feel an obligation to pass that on to the next generation. To be born again is to interrupt the flow. It's to value something much more than than tradition. It's to value authenticity of belief over tradition. The very term born-again Christian exemplifies as non-traditional an outlook on the world, as one could imagine, Um, an outlook in which says that if my ancestors got it wrong, if they did not really experience the joys of Jesus because they were worshipping him in the wrong way or because they were doing the wrong things, I must reject that in favor of my personal calling, of my personal kind of relationship. One of the founders of one of the great evangelical religious movements in the United States, Alexander Campbell, who founded the Disciples of Christ, wrote to one of his relatives back in Scotland in 1815, describing his experiences in the United States. He said, During this period of years, my mind and circumstances have undergone many revolutions. I have renounced the traditions and errors of my early education. A. L. Tomlinson, one of the founders of American Pentecostalism, put it this way in the year 1910, we must break loose from the yoke of bondage we have gotten into by tradition and custom. Tradition has never been a central feature of the evangelical inexperience in America, um, especially when compared to other religions like, like the Jewish religion. And this continues very much today. Uh, I could give you many examples Uh, in evangelical America of what it means to break with uh, tradition. Uh, A number of them are located in this particular state, which is one of the most interesting places in the world to study religion. Southern California is probably the most interesting, certainly the most interesting place in the United States to study religion. Uh, Saddleback uh, Church in Orange County, California, a megachurch, a paradigmatic megachurch, Uh, Is a fascinating place uh, that could be cited as an example of a way uh, by which evangelicals break with tradition in the United States. But Saddleback has been extensively written about. Its founding pastor, Rick Warren, has been the number one bestseller in the New York Times uh, self help list uh, for a number uh, of uh, months now. Uh, His book, The Purpose Driven Life, is one of those books that turns into an industry. Um, and uh, I could talk a lot about Saddleback, but I won't. I'll talk instead about a church you may never heard of. It's called Mosaic. Uh, it's a church in downtown Los Angeles. Um, it's a church that's a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention is our second largest religious denomination in the United States. Um, it is uh, the very model of a conservative Protestant denomination. Um, It uh, um, is, uh, uh, I think, almost more than any other of America's religious movements, the most committed to what could be called the old-time religion. And Mosaic, an SBC church in Los Angeles, has many of those features. Um, Its leadership is entirely male. Uh, Women are not allowed to serve uh, in the clergy or really in any positions of leadership in the church. The church's teachings on homosexuality are strict uh, and uh, uh, condemning of homosexuality as a sin. The theology is very, very conservative. Just about everything else about it, however, is the last thing in the world that I expected to find in visiting a Southern Baptist church. For one thing, it meets in a nightclub. Um, It's a nightclub that used to be owned by Prince. Prince. It's a nightclub where Shaquille O'Neal holds his parties when the church isn't there. Um, it's in downtown Los Angeles. Um, it, the membership uh, of Mosaic is, uh, makes it probably the largest multi-ethnic Protestant church in the United States. Like um, much of the world of uh, the Baptist tradition in America, which is a tradition very, very divided by race, uh, Mosaic, which has thousands of members, has very few African-Americans among its membership. Uh, But it's about one-third white, about one-third Asian American, and about one-third Latino. Uh, Most of the people there work in Hollywood in one capacity or another, Um, and uh, uh, they're very, very young. Uh, And they try to bring their sort of entertainment sensibility that they've developed in Hollywood to the church. The church is very much into performance, Uh, modern dance, all kinds of modern performances uh, take place there. Uh, I I witnessed a dance in which um, four people come out all sort of covered in mud and they wrestle around and so on and slowly the mud begins to fall off and uh, they weren't naked, um, I was wondering, Uh, uh, they had uh, bathing suits on but the point of it was that they were all, they were from four different races and as the mud sort of falls off you discover that they're all we're all sinners together or whatever, uh, uh, and and so on. Uh, The pastor of the church, who's an immigrant from El Salvador, uh, says, uh, when I asked him to describe your membership, he says, we have people who lean toward innovation, toward change, toward invention, toward risk, and toward adventure. We tend to filter into other churches, people who would like stability, security, and predictability. Um, it is uh, a very, very difficult to classify this church uh, by terms like traditional, conservative, non-traditional, liberal. These terms make very, very little meaning in this context. It is a very, very conservative church in many ways, but it is also an enormously innovative uh, church that responds to uh, the circumstances around it. I think what we witness in these kinds of examples that I've been providing... Uh, is uh, um, a theme that uh, I really try to explore in my book and that theme can be summarized in the following way uh, that religion is an enormously powerful force in America and in the lives of most Americans. It is a force that um, uh, gives many, many people a sense of meaning, a sense of who they are, a sense of what the purpose of life is, a sense of how to get from here to there, uh, a way to make sense out of what would otherwise be an incoherent and jumbled world. But there's another force in our culture as well that does all those same things that make sense out of the world, that gives people a sense of meaning, that organizes different kinds of experience. And that force is called culture. We have an American religion that's very powerful and we have an American culture that's very powerful. And in my book, I try to address what happens when they come into conflict. They don't necessarily have to, but they often do. And the theme of my book is that when religion in America and culture in America meet, culture nearly always wins. That as powerful as religion is, American culture, in many ways, is more powerful. And so various aspects of our culture, our uh, culture of instant gratification, our culture of populism that seeks popular control over institutions, our culture of individualism uh, that talks about subjective needs more than objective conditions, that all of these things have shaped American religion in very powerful ways. And that's why tradition is such uh, a difficult thing to find if we think of tradition as an unchanging phenomenon, because while Religions sometimes will describe themselves as traditions and will talk about the world as if things cha- do not change. Our culture is, is a, uh, uh, characterized by constant change. And when that culture of constant change meets re- the religion's image of itself as never changing, it is, in fact, the culture that wins. Um, uh, and uh, that's why I begin with the issue of tradition. But tradition isn't the only way in which we see the impact of American culture on American religion. Let me cite another person, uh, a person who was interviewed by an anthropologist. This person also happens to be from Southern California, Uh, and this person could be described not even as an evangelical, but as a fundamentalist uh, uh, Protestant. There was no total turnabout in my worldview in a moment of time, this person, Ralph Barnes is his name, said. You see, he continued, becoming a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, does not remove the indwelling that is part of our fallen human condition. That is part of our moral being, sinful and corrupted. In redemption, God proclaims us righteous. Objectively based on the finished work of Christ. We can't add to it. Now, I was struck by the report I read of this conversation because it was so different from the way in which almost all of the other Americans to whom I talked talked about their faith. Most Americans do not, in fact, walk around citing passages from the Bible uh, and uh, uh, illustrating their points with quotations from Scripture. Actually, for all the talk about what a Bible-believing culture we have, um, many, many Americans, including many religious Americans, are not actually all that familiar with the Bible. The amount of biblical knowledge in the United States is roughly equivalent to the amount of political knowledge, and as a political scientist, I can tell you that that's fairly low. I can go through and list all the statistics uh, of... uh, what people actually know about what's in the Bible and what isn't, but I'll just give the one that always brings forward the laughs, and that's the one that 10% of Americans think that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. (laughs) See, it's inevitable. uh... American culture is not a culture of intellect, and the Bible is a work of great intellect, American culture is not a textual culture. It's not a culture in which there is a constant, um, alas, and unfortunately, a constant discussion of ideas that are found in books. Uh, American culture is much more of an entertainment culture, much more of a media culture, and so on. And so in this culture where people know relatively little about the history of their country and very little about politics, can we expect that Presbyterians will know uh, what predestination means, uh, that uh, Calvinists can tell us exactly what Calvin and Luther uh, had uh, uh, as differences between them, or even uh, the difference between Martin Luther and Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, and which century one lived in and which century the other one lived in. I am second to none in my conviction that Americans believe they are a believing people. I'm somewhat in doubt, however, about what they believe in if we think of religion as primarily uh, uh, an intellectual exercise. Now, there's no necessary reason why we should. Um, I probably come at this with a prejudice for wanting a kind of religion that has intellectual content in which creeds and doctrines and dogmas are understood and taken seriously, but that's probably my bias about uh, these kinds of things. Um, it is much more in, American, in the actual practice of American religion, and for most people, I think religion speaks much more to the emotions uh, rather than uh, um, uh, to the intellect, uh, with the consequence that the, uh, the heavy emotionality of our culture that produces people capable of sobbing in a moment on television uh, will produce an emotionally drenched religious experience uh, that will take a much greater priority over things like doctrines and creeds and uh, Westminster and uh, Nicene and all of these uh, terms that increasingly sound foreign to American religious believers. Some people really like a high Episcopalian type of thing. This is the pastor in another Southern California church. And other people like to swing from chandeliers and leap out of windows. And he said it as if, well, tell me which it is you like, and we can sort of provide either one at our place. This is a Calvary Chapel, uh, part of the neo Pentecostal uh, movement in American Protestantism. a a movement uh, closely associated with uh, Chuck Smith, uh, who was the founding pastor of this church. And as one of Chuck Smith's pastors describes Reverend Smith, he says, the average student listening to Chuck will never be faced with that stuff, by which he means theology. Um, You may not come out a theologian, but you'll be excited about God's love. You'll be excited about the reality, the possibility of a relationship with God, and you'll want to serve the Lord. And I think this language, the language of uh, discovery of God, the language of what God can do for us in so many ways, is so much a part uh, of uh, uh, of American religious practice. Um, I spent a lot of time with a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, a fellow named Steve Shogren, whose church is uh, uh, one of the uh, most rapidly growing churches in the United States. And I asked him to sort of tell me what, you know, if he could just distill his teachings into a few words, what would they be? And he described them this way. He said, my, the, the purpose of my sermons is love, 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 truth. And as I thought about that, and compared it to someone whose sermons were devoted to truth, 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 love. I'm not sure that I would prefer the latter, uh, intellectual that I am, uh, uh, and a uh, uh, person concerned with truth that I am. I'm not saying to you tonight that I think a religion that has doctrinal content, that thinks of itself as uh, 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 as uh, propagating a truth, and that understands its truth as the only truth, is better than a religion that is much more speaks to our emotions um, and and speaks to a sense of belonging and to a sense of feeling. I don't think I believe that at all. Um, I think that uh, if I were establishing my priorities, especially in this conflict-filled world, I'd rather have love come before truth. Uh, but it is, uh, I, I wouldn't say that about the intellectual side of my life where I think that uh, my job is to convey truth to my students and not love and I wonder if it's fair of me to say you know that my intellectual life is organized by a different set of demands than other people's religious life uh, uh, should be Uh, in any case it seems to me that on this issue of intellectual content and doctrine we have one more example in which American culture uh, shapes American religion rather than the other way around remember uh, our friend here Ralph Barnes, who uh, uh, told us, uh, cited uh, Corinthians. How did he put it here? Uh, uh, He said, um, In redemption, God proclaims us righteous, objectively based on the finished work of God, of Christ. Uh, The um, Reverend Jess Moody of the First Baptist Church of Van Nuys, California. Uh, says that uh, uh, if we use the words redemption or conversion about the members of his church, they think we're talking about bonds. (laughs) Another aspect of American religious practice I think that borrows much from our culture is worship and how people worship. Uh, I teach at a Catholic university, and I think it's fair to say that of all of America's major religions, Catholicism has given the most thought to worship uh, and to what worship should be like, has the most established and developed rules about worship that is in many ways uh, America's most liturgical religion in which um, uh, the, the experience of worship has been thought about and thought about and thought about over the centuries. Uh, it has taken the form of the mass Uh, which uh, uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years never changed, um, formulated uh, at the Council of Trent in the 16th century and altered only with Vatican II. Uh, uh, So it lasted in really unchanging forms from 1570 until about the 1960s, which is really quite remarkable. Um, Always uh, said in Latin, so that wherever you were in the world, it would be the same experience um, uh, a form of worship that placed a heavy emphasis on ritual, and something extensively studied. Um, one of the great anthropologists of our century, Mary Douglas, is a devout Catholic and has, uh, is also an anthropologist who writes about the role of ritual. Um, and her interest in ritual clearly stems from her, the religion that she grew up with. Um, and uh, uh, she's written extensively about the role that ritual plays. In life, and I think the, the the essence of our argument is that a liturgical religion, a ritualistic religion, is bound to downplay the significance of the individual uh, and to emphasize the importance of the collectivity. Because if the worship is one that always takes place in the same way and in the same form, the individual is not expected to come to the worship and say, hey, I got a great idea, uh, let's change it this way. I mean, that's just not what you do if you're Catholic. Uh, um, it's what you do if you're Protestant, but it's not what you do uh, if you're Catholic. And the whole point is that, that this worship was there before you were born, and it's going to be there after you leave, and it has this unchanging character, and the whole uh, um, uh, emphasis is on the community uh, for whom this kind of worship Uh, has been fashioned. The point's also been made very, very brilliantly by another extraordinary Catholic intellectual, one of the great intellectuals of our time, uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, uh, who has written uh, extensively uh, about the conditions of collective life. And last year, actually I guess it was more than last year, he gave uh, a set of lectures at Harvard in which he reinterpreted William James's classic book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, from a Catholic perspective. And he said that while James does a wonderful job, I mean, *The Varieties of Religious Experience is just one of the greatest books I've ever read, bar none, as a magnificent evocation of what it means to be religious. It is conveyed in a very Protestant terms, according to Taylor, that the emphasis is upon the individual um, and what faith can do for the person. For, but for Taylor, a devout Catholic, this Jamesian approach is totally infused with Protestant assumptions about worship. And Catholic assumptions would not begin with the same focus. The Catholic wouldn't say, hey, I go to worship so I can be a better person uh, or, uh, you know, or something like that. It, it's much more an emphasis upon the collectivity. But we do live in a very individualistic society. Our society was founded by Protestants, primarily, and not by Catholics. And individualism has been such a strong theme in our culture. And so an interesting question is raised as how can a solidaristic ethic, a communal ethic, expressed through worship, survive in a very, very individualistic culture where people do expect to bring to the experience of worship something subjective, something based upon their own needs. It is a process, in other words, where even something as seemingly as unchangeable as Catholicism can, under American circumstances, take on certain aspects of our highly influential Protestant culture and adopt aspects of that culture to its own forms of worship. There's been some wonderful work written by ethnographers about the transformation of American Catholic forms of worship and the way Catholic forms of worship adopt themselves uh, to the culture. These, of course, were speeded along by Vatican II itself, uh, as the Catholic writer Gary Wills points out, Vatican II exposed to Catholics around the world this dirty little secret, as Wills calls it, that the church does in fact change. And once people began to realize that, it was, oh my God, the church changes and uh, uh, it can change in, in many, many ways. So uh, uh, certainly what I see at my college uh, are students who uh, are very devout in their Catholic worship, but who expect from their worship, many of the things that Mary Douglas says Catholics shouldn't expect uh, from their worship, uh, um, especially a way of speaking to them, speaking to them personally, uh, helping them throughout the world uh, as individuals cope uh, with uh, the world around them. Uh, And some of those changes are uh, absolutely fascinating uh, to uh, experience. Catholics, among other things, have launched a huge sociological industry in the United States. There are more Catholic sociologists surveying Catholics uh, than I think any other group surveys its own membership about their opinions. Uh, So uh, Catholics were asked, why do you attend Mass? And the single largest group in one survey, 37%, said, I attend Mass to experience the feeling of mediating and communicating with God, compared to 20% who said that they attended Mass uh, uh, for for purposes of receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion. Uh, An emphasis, again, on less on the communal and the traditional and the historical, and more on the immediate. Catholicism in the United States exists in an American culture in which it is in competition with other churches. Uh, it is in competition for membership, and the membership of other churches is much more given to an immediate effort to uh, see worship as a way of responding to people's individual needs, and Catholicism can only catch up. Uh, the competition in American religion is really quite extraordinary. Uh, while um, separation of church and state uh, is uh, so much of a part of our Heritage. I think that we sometimes forget that the idea came to the United States roughly at the same time at which Adam Smith's ideas about the wealth of nations came to the United States, and that there was a parallel between Smith's idea of economic competition, which would in many ways drive out the inefficient enterprises and reward those that were most adoptable, and what separation of church and state has done to our religious life which is to prevent the formation of religious monopolies and to prevent religions from stagnating by being overly dependent on the state for their funding and, in a sense, then adds a similar kind of economic dynamic uh, to uh, religious competition in the United States that bears so much resemblance to our economic system. Let me uh, mention one more uh, aspect of religious practice uh, before telling you what I think I could conclude from this analysis. Uh, And this is the issue that really can't be ignored in a talk of this type, uh, the question of sin. Um, I'll begin here with a quote from uh, a Pentecostal uh, uh, official of the Assemblies of God, E.N. Bell, who was asked in 1922 about uh, how women should arrange their hair Uh, and he responded by saying that for a woman to try to make herself attractive was sinful behavior uh, and that the obligation of a good Christian woman was to be as plain as she possibly could be. Uh, This was a very sin-drenched approach to religion uh, uh, that the uh, early Pentecostals in the 1910s and the 1920s brought to the city of Los Angeles. Uh, The uh, wonderful historian of American Pentecostalism. Grant Wacker of Duke University um, puts it this way. He said, well, the standard evangelical sins, which were smoking, drinking, and dancing, and gambling, uh, I mean, they were too heinous to even require any denunciation. By the way, for those of you who follow these things, uh, Wheaton College in Illinois um, uh, permitted dancing about two weeks ago. uh, uh, A major breakthrough. Wacker continues, but much more impressive than just the usual sins were the ones that the Pentecostals added to the list. At one time or another, uh, he writes, "Uh, the Pentecostals forbade or strongly discouraged, and then he puts them in alphabetical order. Bands, baseball, boating, bowling, circuses, fireworks, football, loitering, parades, skating, valentines, and zoos. And then, just in case that's enough, he then adds, for some reason, a second list, also in alphabetical order. Amusement parks, beach parties, big dinners. Can I get that? Big din- <laughs> chatting on the telephone. Some of these ideas aren't so bad. Uh, Christmas trees, crossword puzzles, home movies, ice cream socials, kissing bees, scenic railroad trips, and my favorite one, visiting relatives and going on automobile trips on Sundays. <laughs> now, that's how Pentecostalism began. There are still some traces of that. As I'm sure many of you know, uh, probably the most prominent Pentecostal in American public life these days is the Attorney General, uh, that is, of the United States. Uh, John Ashcroft is his name. And uh, there was uh, this moment where he didn't like the nude statues in the Department of Justice, and he, he, he tried to cover them. And that... that goes back, I think, uh, and reflects some of this, uh, but uh, Pentecostals these days, the fastest growing uh, parachurch movement, a movement that grows outside the congregations uh, and outside the denominations in American Pentecostalism is an organization called Wom- women 's Glow. and women 's glow operates on premises quite different than the early Pentecostals told us about how women should treat their hair. In fact, a mandatory manicure and visit to the beauty uh, uh, salon is the first requirement uh, for women who enter uh, 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 this organization. Um, women uh, who join Women's Glow believe that they love Jesus and Jesus loves them and therefore they should do their best to look as good as they possibly can. Um, Women's Glow has a uh, large number of African-American members Um, And uh, as I'm sure some of you know, the fastest growing African-American church in the United States, the Church of God in Christ, is known for the hats uh, that women wear. Uh, Some uh, very, very poor women spending a considerable amount of their personal funds on beautiful hats and beautiful clothing. Um, It makes perfect sense to me. Um, I I think that uh, God's will is inscrutable myself, and uh, if uh, I were to try to guess whether he'd like people being as plain as they can or dressing up nicely, it seems to me that dressing up nicely probably has the balance in its favor, Uh, but it is very, very different from uh, the early movements out of which this particular organization uh, grows. Did you ever hide that last piece of cake so that you could have it later? This is a sentence from the classic Slim for Him by Patricia B. Kreml, uh, which is uh, one of the most popular books selling in evangelical Christian bookstores in the United States. Do you ever find yourself hoping that there will be leftovers from your favorite dish so that you can eat it all by yourself the next day? These are breaches of trust in God. Slim for Him is by no means the only diet book uh, of an evangelical persuasion in the United States. I could also mention Daily Word for Weight Loss uh, by Zuck and Meyer, or The Prayer Diet uh, by Matthew Anderson, uh, or um, another one of my favorites, More of Him, Less of Me. (laughs) My personal thoughts, inspirations, And meditations on the Way Down Diet. Now, the Way Down Diet uh, is an enormously popular movement in evangelical America, founded by Gwen Shambin. Some, by one estimate, ten thousand American churches feature the Way Down Diet. When you give your heart to God, Shambin holds, the body will follow. And uh, again, I think um, uh, what we are witnessing is a confrontation uh, between our culture uh, and our religions, and one in which an emphasis upon sin uh, that insists on the eternal um, uh, corruptibility uh, of uh, human nature, uh, which requires uh, some dramatic transformation through God, is one that while it certainly has an upbeat message because there always is the possibility of uh, redemption, uh, when it's portrayed in a negative way, emphasizing how depressing our condition is, it's not gonna fill your churches. It's not gonna bring people out uh, on uh, cold and rainy days uh, to hear such a, a, a message. And I think much more we're likely to hear Talk of uh, uh, that has a much more upbeat character. In my visits to Saddleback, uh, sin was simply never a term uh, that the pastor there, Rick Warren, ever uttered. There was a lot of talk about temptation, uh, but there was very, very little talk about sin. I sort of compare it uh, in in the book to something with which I'm very, very familiar. Um, And uh, that's the phenomenon that all academics know about called grade inflation. Uh, Grade inflation, uh, as uh, I'm sure many of you know, is a two-pronged process uh, that requires that we assign less and less material to our students, but then we give them higher and higher grades for doing less and less work. Well, in a similar kind of way, uh, what we require of people through our religions for salvation is less and less is asked of them and more and more reward is given. And so there is a kind of salvation inflation uh, in the United States that I think um, mirrors some of the other aspects by which the culture has met the religion and the culture has triumphed. Now, I could talk about many other things, but I won't. I will end. I will tell you uh, that uh, these observations lead me to this conclusion. Uh, I read a lot about um, the, uh, the, the role that religion is supposed to play in our public life. Uh, and I hear characterizations of religious believers in the United States that I do not believe correspond in any way to what American religious believers are actually like. Uh, and that's in part because one of the things that I'm constantly being told by people who write about religion is that religion is countercultural. Um, and I don't see how religion can be countercultural when it is so shaped by the culture. The notion that religion is countercultural has many distinguished authorities behind it. There is an extraordinary theologian at the University of Chicago, I think one of the great Catholic theologians of our time, David Tracy, uh, who talks about religion as an exercise in resistance against the culture. Uh, There's the Protestant Methodist, theologian Stanley Hauerwas, uh, who writes about religious believers and describes them as resident aliens, not full members, not full citizens of our society. There's the idea that, the religious, that religious people are a prophetic people, and as a prophetic people, they can point out all the things in our culture that is wrong, that they are antagonistic to the main traditions by which other Americans lead their lives. And therefore, when things go wrong in our society, we can turn, hopefully if we're lucky, to the faithful who can set things right. Um, That as our society becomes uh, corrupt and decadent and take out any speech by Jerry Falwell or a Pat Robertson, as we wallow more and more in the horrible things that we do, only the religious who are a remnant who are a small countercultural form of resistance, only then can we turn to them and have them save us from our sins. Oddly enough, I hear exactly the same language when I talk to some of my friends in the American Civil Liberties Union and other places who believe that religion has really no place uh, in the American public square. They also think of religious believers as countercultural. They say, uh, that religious believers are a threat to our civil liberties because they are intolerant, they are schismatic, they are dogmatic, uh, they constantly want to proselytize, they don't respect the rights of religious minorities. I mean, it's, the same, it's exactly the same language, it's just putting a very, very negative interpretation on it rather than a positive interpretation, but it also, belie- uh, it also insists on the fundamental countercultural uh, nature Uh, Of religious belief. And sometimes very, very distinguished authority is brought out for that point of view. In what I believe to be probably the, the greatest work of political philosophy written in the 20th century, John Rawls, an extraordinarily distinguished political philosopher in 1971 in his book, A Theory of Justice, talks about religious believers roughly this way. Uh, he later sort of apologized and changed his mind. But some of his students, prominent political philosophers in the United States, essentially write religious believers out of the argument for proper membership in a liberal democratic society by claiming that religious believers simply do not have the qualities of open-mindedness uh, that uh, would enable them to really act as uh, a fair uh, and representative citizens of our society. I must say it drives me a little crazy when I hear liberals saying that because I think of myself as a liberal and I think of a person as a liberal who wants to be inclusive and find ways to bring people together uh, rather than uh, to create categories that exclude them. I don't know that we need to worry as much uh, as my liberal ACLU-type friends do about religious believers, and I don't think we need to put our hopes, or I think we'd be wrong if we put our hopes, in the faithful, as some of the people who speak on their behalf argue. Um, I think it's about time to stop thinking of uh, the religious as a people apart, uh, to recognize that, uh, as I say in one of my earlier books, we are one nation after all, that we belong to a nation that has an enormously powerful culture and that for all the divisions that exist in the United States and they are real and many, and we certainly see them in our politics uh, all the time, it would be wrong to conclude uh, that somehow we are deeply divided not only between different faiths but between people of faith and people not of faith. I think we really are all Americans now, the religious among us, no more so and no less so than everyone else. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Professor Wolf has agreed to accept some questions and so um, we have, I think, two two people with microphones. I see one over here uh, and one over here.
1: I think we have a question.
0: And so I will recognize you and please use the microphone so that um, we can all hear you. Stand. Okay. Over here.
1: Um. Professor Wolf, uh, thank you, first of all, for your speech. It was very edifying. Um, I've noticed, and I think some of my teachers have mentioned to me, a certain uniformity of both political and, I guess, moral message among certain fundamental groups of any religion in the United States. Uh, What I guess I'm saying is that certain religious groups in their reactionary move to the right are surprisingly uniform in their message. They say the same things about what they believe about spirituality, about the nature of um, uh, their, their divine text, and also about politics. And I'm kind of wondering, one, is if that's something you agree with, and also, if so, what would you ascribe that to? Where is that coming from? Well, it's a good question, and, and nothing in anything I said uh, should be meant to deny the existence of a Jerry Falwell uh, or a Pat Robertson. They are very much part of our Culture and they say things um, that uh, I personally find um, um, destructive uh, 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 and um, uh, things that I disagree with very, very much. I only wonder how many followers they have. Uh, I only wonder whether or not the kind of ways in which they talk really resonates among their own presumed. Constituencies. They, they would like to say that they're speaking for a very, very large movement of believers, um, and I don't think they are. Um, I do think that uh, um, they um, certainly have access on cable television. Anybody can do that. They, even I was on the O'Reilly Factor a couple of weeks ago talking about my book, and if, if I can go on there, God. Uh, so, you know, they, they have those kinds of platforms. Um, there is uh, uh, also a technical answer to your question that I don't want to bore anybody with technicalities at this hour, uh, but uh, for all kinds of reasons that have to do with voter turnout and with election laws and so on, a tiny proportion of the hardcore of each political party determines the presidential candidates of that party. And within that very, very small group of Republicans that determine who's going to be the Republican candidate, even uh, very, very conservative Christians play a major role in a number of key states. And so that does make for a political influence. Uh, There's absolutely no doubt in my mind uh, that uh, the current president, for example, feels, uh, uh, well, we know that his uh, advisor, Karl Rove, said that he was very disappointed that uh, not enough conservative Christians voted in 2000, that they want to get more out uh, the next time. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that given the uh, decision, which I found a very moving and persuasive decision of the Supreme Judicial Court Court of Massachusetts legalizing gay marriage, uh, that that will become an issue. Uh, The Democrats will be nominating their candidate in Massachusetts, Our our delegation to Congress is is all Democratic in both houses. The most openly gay member of the Congress is from Massachusetts. I mean, I'm sure that these are going to be issues in the next election because um, uh, of the fact that uh, very, very small numbers of people um, get to determine the candidates and that Mr. Bush will make uh, appeals. He'll actually probably take the high road in this and let – the kind of army of Republican opinion makers do some of the dirty work on this issue, but it's there. So, so uh, you're absolutely right, these things exist. I hope, uh, from my analysis, that, uh, uh, that, there is a, uh, uh, that if I'm right, that too much of this kind of language, too much of the harshness uh, can really um, uh, have uh, a rebound effect in evangelical America. Um, uh, and uh, uh, could even possibly lead, well, it's probably not going to lead large numbers of evangelicals to vote Democratic, uh, uh, but not necessarily to support some of the more extreme kind of comments. But uh, it's a good question. Thank you.
2: I also want to thank you, Professor Wolf, and uh, uh, you do uh, great honor to the Walter Capps Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life, and I say that with the... Uh, a lot of meaning because he was my husband for many many years. And I want to ask you a question, but I want to do so by thanking the uh gentleman standing next to you uh and uh let this uh group uh know what a, a tribute uh Clark Roof also paid to this uh center at UCSB, uh the Cap Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life by presenting to my colleagues from California, congressional colleagues over the past weekend. Um, A a, um, a kind of an unusual occasion where this quite um, diverse group of members of Congress, politically diverse, gathered in in an effort to come together uh, around the needs of the state and our weekend was devoted to uh, looking toward the future of what California will be like. Uh, a couple of decades from now. And capping that weekend of discussion was Clark Roof talking about religious diversity. And a lot of it centered on some of the congregations that you were describing in Los Angeles area. But he focused on the immigrant cultures to some degree. And that's the part I want to ask you about. Um, I, I found myself arguing with you as you were talking about if culture and religion... Come together, culture always wins. And um, I'm thinking about uh, the diversity. We don't have a majority in California now. Uh, it's, uh, I, I would imagine, probably the, the most diverse state in the Union. And a lot of that diversity is expressed through the varieties of religion that our immigrants bring to this. To me, that's a real strength of this country. Uh, it presents challenges. But when Clark talked about the variety of religious faiths in the Los Angeles area, it, it made the world uh, look just a, a bit different. And I wonder if you could comment on um, how you see the immigrant cultures as they influence American religion.
1: Okay. Well, going caps. I didn't know you were here in the audience, if I had, I uh, would have asked you directly uh, what you think of the House of Representatives these days. In fact, I'd kind of love to know, but I'm the one who has to answer the question. I like your colleague from Massachusetts. <laughs> so do I. He's my congressman. Um, I have a, a chapter in my book uh, uh, about um, immigrant religion in the United States, and, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it, it is kind of... If my strong thesis about the impact of American culture on religion is to hold, the real place to test it is with people who've come recently from another culture. Uh, And uh, then to really see what happens under those circumstances. And much, of course, as you know, much of the immigration really only dates to 1965 and the changes in the uh, immigration law uh, of that year. And so it hasn't been a whole lot of time, uh, only really uh, one generation, uh, but I'm, I think the changes are increasingly dramatic um, as uh, uh, Clark mentioned in the introduction that I host these seminars uh, for Muslim scholars and I begin the seminar by saying that before the end of the 20th century, before roughly 1948 and 1950 uh, there were two things about religion in the world uh, that were true that aren't really necessarily true anymore one is that all Jews in the world lived in a society in which they're a minority, and the other was that almost all Muslims lived in societies in which they're a majority, and that with the creation of the state of Israel for the first time, at least since the Bible, uh, Jews now live in a state in which they're a majority, and really for the first time in any significant numbers, 25 or 30 million Muslims live in the United States and Western Europe and other countries where they're living in predominantly Christian societies. And this is a whole new thing. Jews have never known what it is to create a state uh, uh, until the state of Israel and to work out the role of religion in that state. And Muslims have never known what it means to live as a Muslim in a a predominantly Christian society. Um, What I see happening all over is the emergence of an of an American version of Islam that borrows greatly from the predominant Christian culture of the society. Um, you see that in the fact that the whole nature of a mosque in the United States has already taken on functions that are completely different from what a mosque's functions are in a Muslim-majority society. Um, much more like a congregation. In one of these visits of the Muslim scholars that the State Department funded, I must have spent two full weeks with these visitors from Egypt and from Jordan and from Palestine and so on. Uh, I gave them to Tocqueville to read. I said in America, we do things they 're voluntary. we have separation of church and state. This is what it means, and you know I thought they were getting it. I, I hope they were getting it. Um, then uh, we went on a field trip and we went on the field trip to uh, Garden Grove, California, in Orange County, where there's a very, very large mosque. They are one of the largest in the United States. And the imam at Garden Grove, who is himself an immigrant, actually from Iraq, um, uh, talked to my Muslim scholars, and he started describing how the whole thing is run by voluntary contributions. And that's when they got it. Although Tocqueville didn't help um, all the reading of Roger Williams didn't help, and Thomas Jefferson. It was when they, one of them, scratched his head. Now this was after weeks of trying to, by trying to drive it through them. He scratched his head. And says, you mean the government doesn't pay for it? And uh, it, it was just such a, an astonishing thought for that. And so I think that you know, what I learned through that encounter was that what we could more or less call a kind of congregational model of religion. In which uh, uh, the uh, uh, church becomes a kind of community center, it becomes a place uh, for uh, uh, run by boards of directors and so it, it, all of these things. Uh, it, Islam in the United States has taken on uh, all of these uh, congregational features. And uh, people who are experts in other religions like Buddhism, Uh, and others tell me that very much the same thing is taking place there. So uh, I just hope that there can be enough uh, uh, of a Muslim diaspora uh, so that enough Muslims can experience that it is possible to have religion outside a sharia or outside a situation in which the law of the religion and the law of the state are the same, and to learn through that that not only Can religion survive under such circumstances, but that it can flourish in all kinds of ways? And so um, uh, I put my hopes in that process, uh, and I've seen some evidence of it, uh, but uh, uh, I certainly think that what we're witnessing now, since uh, the recent immigration from non-Christian lands in the United States is really very similar to what we've witnessed earlier in which American Catholicism became a distinctly American form of Catholicism and in which American Judaism became a very distinctly American form of Judaism.
3: Thank you, Professor. My name is Sonia Katerina Delk. I'm a Russian But when I I came to this country, I wanted a religion where women were part of the hierarchy. So I became a Protestant. In the early 80s, we discovered my women friends, that we were happy in our mainline Protestant denominations. Women were ministers. We had a place. But the attack of the fundamentalists that bothered us was not that they were against the unbelievers, but they were against the mainline religions. As we tried to tell our husbands, our husbands, we found, didn't know any of the creeds. You mentioned this in your book. They didn't know why they were Presbyterian, why they were Lutheran. So it was the... um, the foursquare square and that what you're saying that really didn't have much truth or doctrine, just the love thing, and that there was that 20 years, 30 years here of that that they were putting down of the mainline churches. Of course, the mainline churches shrunk, and the other churches became larger. Do you see this continuing to happen, or do you see that, in my case, it's the women that are the strong po- persons in the mainline churches as more women become ministers. My own teenage girl wants to be a minister. Do you see that on the forefront of America or not?
1: Well, um, the, the decline of mainline churches cannot continue at the rate it was because it was such a huge rate that it would inevitably slow up. Uh, and um, um, so, and, and and I think that as many of the mainline churches Revisited some of their understandings of gender roles and and changed them. Um, That this was, whether this was, in a sense, a recognition that they were losing members and had to do something, or whether it was just part of the culture of the times, it certainly happened. But it's happening in the evangelical world as well, in very, very different ways. Um, Even in very conservative religions where Um, uh, the the clergy is restricted to man and uh, where there's a lot of talk about male headship and that the woman should follow the man the way the man should follow Jesus. I think that we still fail to recognize when we, if we're tempted to dismiss conservative and evangelical Protestant churches as invariably sexist, that much of the revival of evangelicalism in America has been female-led that uh, uh, women um, uh, have been a huge part of the uh, revival of conservative Protestantism uh, in spite of its attitudes toward women. And uh, the paradox for there I try to explain in my book is that while many of the women that I try to introduce readers to through my book could never be called feminists. They don't like the term feminist and they hate the term feminist and and liberal feminist would even be worse. They um, actually speak almost exactly like one famous feminist, Carol Gilligan, writes about women. They speak as if they have a different moral voice. They, speak, they, will, they will say things like, well, men are in charge of the organization, but we're in charge of the spirit. Um, and they'll talk about uh, women as having a very special role to play as spiritual beings. They'll also talk the language of empowerment. Uh, I'm just struck by how many very conservative Christian women... Uh, who sound like uh, um, they're talking as if they want to go back to uh, the 1950s family and so on, are actually very powerful people, uh, very empowered people, whose born-again conversion has given them a sense of self-confidence. Uh, and given them abilities, organizational abilities and other abilities in their churches that has turned them into anything but doormats. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that that is really um, something somewhat of a neglected aspect, although there are people, sociologists, who have written about this phenomenon. Yes, sir. I, I can speak out. And can,
0: can we get a microphone?
1: Thank you for your lecture. Um, On the basis of what you were saying, would it be reasonable to assume that, that if we are being shaped by the culture, that those of us in mainline churches have been shaped and are constantly on the reflecting edge of high culture and, and more liberal culture, where evangelicalism is shaped by pop culture. And if that is true, then you can look at our theologies, and about every ten years after new Fat on either side, we, we, we develop a theology that sort of justifies what's going on in the culture. And if that's true, what uh, is the effect of postmodernism, or what will be the effect of postmodernism on that trend over the last hundred years uh, in the ch- American church? Well, that last part's I, a big one. Uh, that last part's one, a big uh, one. I was with you until that last part. Um, I actually argue in the book that um, I, I don't like these terms mainline um, and so on anymore. Uh, I mean, the, the notion of a mainline church sort of assumes that the historically more liberal churches, the Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, um, were in some ways part of uh, the main culture and, so, and that the uh, evangelical churches were, were countercultural to that. But I would say that if there are any really countercultural churches in America these days, it's the mainline churches. That the culture is a kind of, as I see it anyway, as a kind of a NASCAR, Oprah Winfrey culture uh, she lives here, doesn't she? Absolutely. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. Say never. Please, Oprah, forgive me. Um, uh, and that the 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 resistance to the culture, if it's there, is actually in the mainline churches, which still believe that you know you should know something about the intellectual side of the religion uh, uh, and. Uh, so on uh, and, and so um, I, would, I take the argument that a lot of evangelicals make about what evangelicals should do for the culture and say this is true but it's not true of evangelicals it's true of the main line that the, they're the remnant uh, they're the people that I uh, see as, as being charged with a kind of special obligation to counter the culture and to hold the culture up to something higher um, I don't, didn't go into it tonight I went into it. Where's my friend from Westmont? Still here. Uh, <laughs> I went into it at Westmont a little early. But I, I try throughout the book to be rel- as non-judgmental as I can. It's, I'm not actually religious at all. Uh, and uh, I, I write about religion, and I'm curious about it. But I didn't see, I don't have an agenda. I'm not advising churches on what to do. That's the last thing in the world I, I would want to do. So I, I don't really pass judgment. But there's one place where I stop and get very, very judgmental. Um, and that's on the subject of music. Um, um, I can't stand the music in evangelical America. I just can't stand it. Um, uh, I like, uh, I'm not a religious person, but if I were religious, uh, I would worship Johann Sebastian Bach. And uh, when I go into churches that don't have organs, uh, well, so you get where I'm coming from. I can't deal with the postmodernism, I'm sorry.
3: I'd like you to uh, comment, please, on the seeming dominance of puritanism in a nation that prides itself on freedom. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. The uh, federal prohibition on uh, marijuana for both medical and recreational purposes and uh, the fact that there's only a handful of counties up and down each state that have clothing-optional beaches.
1: Um, well last Sunday my wife who's writing a book about Muslims in Europe came back from Amsterdam and after she told me about the public availability of marijuana in Amsterdam I think I'm a Puritan Um, uh, if if that's where it's going to lead as she was describing it Uh, I guess I don't have any problems uh, uh, with the Puritanism of it. Um, I'm actually somewhat uh, culturally conservative on a number of these kinds of issues. So you're probably asking the wrong person. Um, um, There is no real Puritans, um, uh, and, and especially their Calvinism, has been so incompatible with American culture. I mean, not only the idea that your fate is outside your control, uh, is predestined, you know, which for Americans, that's an inconceivable thought. We believe that we're captains of our faith, the idea that it could be predestined. But then the idea that God's choices could be totally arbitrary and independent of anything we do is just so totally foreign. That, that kind of Puritan theology couldn't survive 50 years in this country, and I don't think it did. Uh, So I don't think we've been Puritan for a long time. Um, um, And I don't actually see uh, uh, the culture, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, as all that Puritan, but as making some relatively sensible distinctions about... But you're talking, I mean, in Massachusetts, uh, we're now, uh, as of last week, allowing the liquor stores to be open on Sunday. And uh, I'm against it.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, Professor.
1: Do you believe that President Bush as a born-again Christian can be an effective president for the majority of Americans? Um. Well, I think he is a born-again Christian. He doesn't talk all that much uh, about his own faith, but he, he does from time to time. And of course, I learned early doing this research that I'm not in a position to judge the sincerity of anyone else's statements, and that would be a foolish territory to uh, go down. Uh, So uh, I'm not going to get involved in the question of whether the man is really religious or not. Uh, What I can say is that the way he talks about God is very much like the way the evangelicals I meet in America talk about God. Um, His is not a God of doubt. Uh, this is not some Kierkegaardian my wife is from Denmark, this is not some Kierkegaardian uh, god that we're talking about here, Uh, this is your quintessential American evangelical, I am empowered because God told me what to do and you know, uh, uh, and I'm going to do it and and it is a it does have overlaps with the sort of 12 step recovery uh, uh, aspects of uh, what evidently was the president's former dependence on a Substance that he, through the help of his religion, cured. So that's the language that I hear. Uh, whether it's effective or not is a very, very complicated question to answer. Um, I, I am uh, one of those people who is, uh, I'm teaching a course on Abraham Lincoln next semester. I'm just a great admirer of Abraham Lincoln, who by all accounts was not a religious person, but who knew his Bible inside out. Uh, And comparing Lincoln to some of the other presidents that have come after, including, I guess, the present occupant of the White House, I'd rather have a non-religious person who knows the Bible uh, than a religious person who doesn't know the Bible as president. I just Uh, thought of that.
0: Can I ask a question? Uh, I I very much enjoyed your presentation, and there were so many fascinating things in it, like uh, your observation about the non-textual, biblical textual nature of American culture. But I have a question that I'd like to ask about in your model of what's happening in the transformation of American religion, culture doesn't change. And my question would be for you to reflect for a moment with us on the degree to which religion actually impacts and changes this static mm-hmm. element of uh, of culture as you defined it.
1: Well, I think it's a, a good point. I, um, obviously, culture changes, and culture changes in part because the religion influences it. And so, you know, you can get into a kind of never-ending cycle of which causes what. Uh, but um, uh, let me put it this way, that uh, when I read the great classic text about uh, American culture, Tocqueville's Democracy in America... To me, everything, not everything, he made a few things wrong, so, but what he describes in the 1830s still seems true of the culture now. It's a long time later, uh, and yet there must be some kind of powerful continuities in our culture if that analysis could hold up that long uh, and over that much time. Uh, but if I read some of the religious thinkers of the time and um, what they were saying uh, about faith in the 1830s, that seems very, very dated and and very out of date. So I I think it's in that sense that I see the the culture as having a more powerful continuity. Okay.
0: We'll take one more question.
4: That would be me. Sir, uh, I thank you for uh, fielding my question. I'm not a very learned man and I'll do the best I can with this. Uh, I'm a full Bible-believing Christian. Uh, I see uh, our society... Making laws daily that are leading itself away from uh, the way that God in the Bible has taught us to live and uh, the virtues and uh, the laws which He gave us to live by. Uh, We've taken the Bible and the Lord's Prayer out of school. We've replaced them with guns and knives. Uh, We have passed. uh, We have passed. many laws which uh, are contrary to the laws which God gave us to live by. Uh, And I think in certain areas we even bend the laws totally away from what God says. For instance, a quick example, if uh, a heterosexual person slays a homosexual person, they're subject to more time for that crime because it's it's classified as a hate crime. Now, if a homosexual person would slay a heterosexual person because he's heterosexual, he's just relegated to less time. I'm sure you understand where I'm going here. My question, sir, quickly is, as the laws that we pass are pulling God out of our society, is there still time for us to turn this around? And in your opinion, if so, what will it take?
1: Well, I I don't share your religious convictions, um, but I do think that we went too far in taking God out of the schools, for example. Um, I think if my analysis is correct, um, it ought to lead to the conclusion that, um, especially in the heyday of its uh, uh, strict separationist uh, doctrines, the Supreme Court went, I think, needlessly too far um, uh, to the point now where Uh, Not only is religion taken out of the schools, but the teaching of religion is taken out of the schools where we become so fearful of religion in our public life. So I I actually personally wouldn't mind redrawing that boundary um, in a way that would allow a little more God talk in our society. um, And I say that as a non-believer. And I, uh, uh, for example, um, the decision uh, about uh, taking under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, Uh, That strikes me as a relatively harmless thing. I don't think anybody's rights are really violated by that. I don't think it's the Spanish Inquisition uh, to have the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. I think that politics requires compromise. Uh, Religious believers are entitled to certain... Policies that uh, they want just as secular Americans. And if what they want is to have under God in the Constitution, it doesn't bother me. Um, uh, under God in the pledge, it doesn't bother me. So, you know, it's a question of drawing the line in, in different kinds of ways. Uh, but uh, uh, um, uh, the, with the rest of your analysis, I hear it and so on, but it, it's just not something I agree with.
0: I want to thank Alan Wolf for for a very provocative session.